Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 22. We're going to read verses 6 through 20 this morning. Continuing in our um, series of Christ and the Carols, uh, this will be an unusual sermon compared to the others. The, the, the previous ones I've been able to stick to one text in Scripture to explain that hymn, if you will. Uh, this time I'm going to be all over the place. Uh, the, the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel references a number of Old Testament passages, primarily in the book of Isaiah, so we're going to be looking at a lot of those uh, individually. But why don't we start with Revelation 22, for that's sort of the, the initial call for this hymn in the first place. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, John speaking says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent David the bright. I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words, the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would again enlighten our minds, soften our hearts, give us uh, ears to hear uh, from the Word of God this morning. We pray that we would be encouraged, uh, not only by the words of Scripture themselves, but even by the words of those who have meditated upon these words for many, many centuries now. We pray that we would join with them in raising our voices, uh, rejoicing unto the Lord our God for bringing a Savior in Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. A few years ago, while visiting a, a home for mentally disabled children, uh, the previous president of Moody Bible Institute, his name is Joseph Stoll, uh, noticed that as he walked around this building that there were tiny handprints all over the windows throughout the building. And so he asked the manager about, you know, do they not clean the windows here or what? You know, what's the deal? And uh, basically the manager said, oh, those, uh, well, the children here, they love Jesus. 
And they're so eager for his return that they regularly lean against the window and look up for him into the sky. Talk about a childlike faith, right? They're not looking for Santa Claus. They're looking for Christ to return. And it's that same sense of eagerness and expectation that the writer of the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is is trying to instill within us that we would say, come, come, where is he? Why is he not here just yet? And so what he's doing, uh, the original author, he's anonymous, we don't know who he is or who they were, if there were many of them. Um, He's basically putting three different perspectives all into one. So he's originally talking about the generation that Isaiah was writing to uh, in their anticipation of, of coming out of exile from Babylon back into the promised land. They're, they're looking for the Savior to come to bring them back home. But then it also looks forward to the generation at the time of the birth of Christ when he's coming to save the world from their sin, but then also a third generation, perhaps our generation, perhaps a generation much farther in the future when Christ finally comes and ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. He's, he's putting all three of those perspectives into one hymn. It's a very famous hymn. Most of you ought to be familiar with it. It originally was translated into the English language in 1851, but it had come originally from the Latin. And it was a series of seven chants that uh, were chanted for seven nights before the day of Christmas, all at separate worship services. They weren't originally one hymn, but rather just one chant that would be sung each each night, saying, O come, O come, O come, until finally we see something of his coming with the birth of Christ. So the original chants, though, uh, are, we think were written around the 8th century A.D. So very, very old words that we're singing here that have been translated. They, they finally were compiled, if you will, in the 12th century, uh, but now we have this this great rich theology, great rich text from which we sing on a regular basis each Christmas time. Originally it was called the Great O's, which would make sense because each verse begins with O, the vocative O, O come, Lord Jesus. But each one of the O's is referencing a different name for Christ. So you're saying, O come Emmanuel, O come O day spring on high. We keep giving a different version, uh, a different title that, that's given for the name of Christ in the Old Testament. But again, as I said, there were originally seven verses in the hymn instead of the five that most of us are, are used to or familiar with. And the reason for that is because the, the man who translated uh, the hymn into the English language only had the first five verses. He didn't have the, the other two. And uh, it's only recently in the last number of years that uh, two others have been added. But they're not as good. I'll just have to be honest with you. They're just not as poetic, not as memorable. And they were written by a guy who's very liberal and didn't even believe in Christ. So I don't know about that. So we're not going to sing those two. But I'm going to break down the first five and help you understand a little bit more about what they're originally looking for. Uh, But before we do that, before we get into the scriptural references, I wanted to say one more thing about the mood of the song itself. You'll notice that the tune is not quite as festive as many other Christmas songs that we know and love. Uh, If you compare it to Joy to the World, for instance, or even uh, O Come Come, All You Faithful, uh, it's it has a much more somber mood, a much more somber feel to it, and, and, and rightly so, because the, the words are, are meant to be wedded to the historical setting in which they were written. written. Again, the first generation is this people of God who are in exile in Babylon, and they're not a cheerful bunch at that moment. They're looking for uh, 
salvation. They're looking for a return back to their homeland. But in the meantime, they're sorrowing and they're, they're waiting uh, for God to keep his promises. So there's this continual tension throughout the hymn between this somber mood and yet, on the other hand, a very festive, triumphant mood. You'll, you'll notice that uh, this is very common throughout Scripture. Uh, even the Apostle Paul, as he's describing his ministry to the Corinthians, both his ministry as well as the ministry of his fellow apostles, he, 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 he describes it as this way. He says, we live as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We live as sorrowful, yet always Rejoicing. So what we see in the hymn, every verse begins with sort of that somber mood. And then all of a sudden, when they begins to contemplate the promises of God that he is, in fact, coming, you'll notice it changes from that somber mood to a very triumphal rejoicing. A very, a very a change, a very dr- dramatic contrast in that sense as the church sings of her confidence of the Lord's second coming. So, of course, it's not a song that's... Uh, Readily enjoyed, I'd say, by unbelievers, for they really wouldn't get the concept of it too much. Uh, Anyone who has their mind mainly set on earthly things is not going to be looking for the coming of Christ, is not going to be singing it with gusto, any any of the the phrases within this hymn, uh, primarily because they're not a people that are overly bothered by the fact that Christ isn't here right now in the flesh. They're not overly concerned about their sins. They're not groaning inwardly over the redemption in their bodies. They're certainly not waiting for the day in which righteousness reigns throughout the land. This song is primarily for Christians, for those saintly souls who continue to ache and to yearn and to long for a better country. So again, you're, you're sensing this mood for someone who is sort of lamenting and yet also rejoicing. And so we often refer theologically to this contrast, this tension between what we refer to as the already and the not yet. Already we have tasted something of this heavenly gift. Already we have known something of the Savior who is to come, but we have not yet seen him in the flesh. We have not yet experienced the righteousness that has been promised to us. And so this hymn is written to us as a direct application of that passage I read to you earlier in Revelation 22, exhorting us to continue to say on a daily basis, come, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Over and over again, that's what the hymn is trying to instill within us, that desire for the return of Christ. So with that being said, let's take a look at the first verse. And if we can get that one on the screen so you can see it a little bit better. Uh, it's also on, uh, I think it's hymn 194 in the red hymnals before. If you want to look in there, you can see it too. It's the same verses um, in the same order. So in the first verse, the English translation of the hymn says this, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And, when, and most of us know, after having heard many Christmas sermons, I'm sure, uh, that that first title, Emmanuel, comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, where we're told that a virgin would conceive and bear a son whose name would be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And, and, and the reason for this is Jesus is God in the flesh. He comes to live the life uh, that we could not live and then lays down his life for sin that we might approach the holy throne of God. Now, once that title is, is given and once it's upon our lips, every time we have the title of Christ, we're also then making a petition for God to do something based upon his name, based upon who he is. And so now we're saying, uh, O Lord Emmanuel, come and ransom captive Israel. So come to us. 
Help us, save us. So again, if you're thinking of the original generation that was stuck in Babylon, we see in Isaiah 35, verse 10, the prophet says this, And the ransom of the Lord, they shall return, and they shall come to Zion with singing, and sorrow and sighing shall all flee away. And so what we're seeing is the, the people of God are pleading with the Lord that He would bring uh, His salvation to them in such a full and... and uh, certain manner. Uh, and so what we see, the New, the New Testament generation is also looking for the same thing. Not, not that they would come back to the promised land, but that God would bring them uh, His presence in, in the fullness and power of God, that He would give them a full salvation, freedom from their sin. And finally, when we consider the the generation that we're in today, we're, we're not waiting for Him to come and ransom us out of any physical captivity in that sense, but rather to take us out of this fallen world that we're in, uh, this place that we have lost sight of, of the righteousness that dwells upon high. In the meantime, we're also mourning in lonely exile. I mean, if you think about it, the whole theme of, of all Scripture uh, until Revelation 21 and 22 is pretty much a theme of exile. If you think about it, every single chapter in all the Bible is written to a group of exiles, those who are no longer in paradise, those who are no longer in the Garden of Eden, those who are no longer uh, in the very presence of God. So we're, we're constantly crying out, Emmanuel, you used to be with us a long, long time ago. We're longing for that again, and the time where God is walking in the cool of guard, in the garden with Adam and Eve, that he would walk with us in the same manner. And so it's with that, that sense of loneliness, that sense of sorrow, where are you? Are you going to come and dwell with us again? that then the, the note changes to the rejoicing. Isaiah 61 is then referenced, this is the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, when all those enslaved shall be released from their captivity and all the exiled shall be unable to return to their homes again. This is the certain and, 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 and uh, full truth of, of Christ and the gospel, that he is coming and that he will once again reign with us in righteousness. So that's, that's the first verse in a nutshell. But then when we consider the second verse, it's a little bit different, uh, if that one's up there yet. Uh, the second verse, we're singing, O come, O come, thou Lord of might, for again, our God is mighty to save. So we're looking for God to save that first generation in the same way that he had saved Israel out of Egypt, if you remember, by the parting of the Red Sea. So again, those exiles in Babylon are looking for this mighty salvation, but you'll notice it doesn't reference anything about the splitting of the Red Sea or about the Pharaoh or any of those things during that time. Instead, he references uh, the tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times who did give the law and cloud and majesty and awe, which just seems kind of strange because we're, we're not thinking of a, sort of a comfortable and safe place for God's people here, but rather we're thinking of a place that sort of terrified them, did it not? We're thinking of a, a time in which an unholy people are approaching a holy God and they're scared to death, and yet the Lord is with them, but He's with them in holiness. Now, what you need to remember about this uh, particular text that we're singing in, in the second verse is that it's referencing Christ as the one who is giving them the law at Mount Sinai. That the law giver is also the law keeper. The reason why we're singing in expectation of him coming, not only to usher in his world of righteousness, but also that he might fulfill the law in our place. Because what made us so scared before knowing Christ Jesus does not make us scared at all when we finally hear the law of God and are encouraged and love the law. We're not afraid of the law, 
Because now the law of God has made peace with the gospel of Christ. We now have salvation, the assurance of God's love, and we're asking for him to come and usher in this righteousness again because we now are considered to be a righteous people. It's not something that we're scared of now, you see, because the law no longer condemns us. The law has already condemned uh, sinful human flesh in the body of Christ. And so we read in Isaiah 33, verse 22, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. He is both the lawgiver, he's the judge, and he's the savior. How does he save us? He saves us by living according to the law in a way that we never would or could. And then having uh, having the, the punishment taken up for not keeping that law uh, dealt out upon his own son. So every sinner who continually falls short of the glory of God this day and is mourning over his sin, is pleading for the Christ to come to finally usher us into this world of righteousness, but in a non-fearful way, that we can have peace with God because Christ has already borne the punishment and the curse of the law. That's sort of the second verse in a nutshell. But then if you look at the third verse, there we sing, O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Now in addition to bearing the curse of the law, uh, something also has to be done about the fear of death and the slavery of sin, if you will. Uh, and so what we see in this particular text is uh, that Jesus is coming as the rod of Jesse to free us from this cruel bondage uh, to the devil. If you know your Old Testament history, Jesse was the father of David, right? And Jesse had many sons. All of them were passed over except for David. Well, in the same way, the Israelites who are in exile in this time in Babylon, many of them feel like they have all been passed over. But who is the one who is the chosen son of God? Who is this one who is the firstborn son of God? Who is this one who would come and reign as has been promised? The Lord has chosen what he would refer to as a stump or a shoot of Jesse. He is the root of Jesse, and, and this is the one that, that David read from earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, that this stump would not only save Israel, but would judge the whole world in righteousness. This root of Jesse would be a sign for all the nations, even the heathen nations of the world, who, who were at that time completely bound up under the prince of the darkness of this world. They could not see salvation. They weren't attached to the nation of Israel at all. And now uh, Jesus has come to bind Satan in order that the, the nations, even the heathen, would be able to come and have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this early on. Uh, every time we see Jesus uh, preaching and teaching in the individual towns, we also see them healing uh, different people of their various illnesses. But additionally, you see him casting out demons wherever he goes as well to prove his power over the Lord of darkness, if you will. And so Jesus has come to destroy his power, has come to free those who have been enslaved to his tyranny all of these years, and he does that through the victory upon the cross. Then fourth, we sing, O come thou day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Now the, the word day spring can refer to either literally the sunrise or the first uh, sign of light in the morning, if you will, or it can also refer to what we refer to as the bright morning star, which is not really a star at all, 
but rather the planet Venus, right? It's the first light that we see in the sky right before the, the breaking of the dawn. Uh, but the symbolism here is unmistakable. What it means is that Jesus is the bright light that shines even in the midst of the reigning of darkness. So when it seems like there is no hope, when it seems that there is no light, Jesus is able to shine through the darkest of the depths of darkness and open up hope for the people of God. And so again, uh, the, the reference here is in Isaiah 9, verse 2. It says, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And, and we know that Jesus is applying this passage to himself when he says, I am what? I am the light of the world. I might bring light in the midst of darkness. I might bring life under the shadow of death. And that's exactly what Zechariah prophesied. We see if you go out there and you see the two Zacharias uh, in our Jesus Walk production, um, in, in reference to one of them in, in the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah makes this prophecy concerning his, his son John, but in reference to Jesus, he says this, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So for anyone sitting in uh, the darkness this day, for anyone sitting under the shadow of death, for anyone fearing death, for anyone fearing hell itself, Christ has come to break that bondage, come to break that fear, that you wouldn't have to worry about your standing before a holy God anymore, but rather can know and, and have the peace of the Lord that Jesus has already paid the punishment for my sin, that I can indeed know the love of God and can sit in the light no longer sitting in the darkness. Then finally, fifth, we sing this, O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. It's, it's not enough merely for Jesus to bind the strong man. He also has to enable the sinner to enter into the gates of heaven itself. You can't just get out of the domain of darkness, but now have to be ushered into the domain of light. And so we see Christ here is pictured as literally as a key that opens the gates to heaven. Again, here's the reference, Isaiah 22, verse 22. The Lord says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Now that, that language probably sounds a little familiar to you, but more likely in reference to Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus is, is showing his disciples who he is, and they make that, that great confession that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And he says this to them, that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so that whatever is bound on earth will also be bound in heaven, and whatever is loosed on earth will also be loosed in heaven. So what he's saying to them is that when these apostles let people into the membership of the church of Christ, it's as if they're letting them into the very courts of heaven itself. And if for some reason they were to have to excommunicate someone, it's as if they had barred the gates of heaven against this person based upon either the forgiveness of sins or else the hardening of the heart against the forgiveness of sins. So it's, it's, it's always Christ is the key. It's not the leaders of the church. He's the key. And he says this very clearly, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. He says, I am the one who has the key of David, who opens so that no one can shut, and who shuts that no one might open. And this is a great and precious promise for the people of God, mainly for this reason, 
uh, that no matter what you do or don't do, or no matter what anyone else does or doesn't do, uh, they cannot shut the gates of heaven to you if Christ has once opened them for you. The same way, for any sinner, no matter how much money he has to try to buy his way into the kingdom of heaven, no matter how much the good person tries to do all of his good works to get into the kingdom of heaven, the gates of heaven will still be shut if he does not know the name of Christ. So we see over and over again, it all comes down to this idea of the forgiveness of sins. If someone knows the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, the gates of heaven are open wide to him. But if he doesn't know the name of Christ, they are in fact shut and they will never be opened to him. But the same way, he says not only the gates are open wide, but he also makes the, the way itself safe, if you will, the highway to heaven, if you will, main, is, is, is kept safe on behalf of the believer. Again, this is another passage, 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. Paul says this with great confidence in the Lord Jesus near the end of his life. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every deed, every evil deed, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Not only has he promised that the gates would be open for me at the end of my journey, but he's promised to be with me all along the way in my journey and keep the path safe for me. And I, he knows that to be the case because even Jesus himself says, I am the path, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, but he keeps that path safe for the people of God. They don't have to worry about what tomorrow might hold because it's already being guarded by the Lord Jesus himself. And then finally, in that same uh, verse, the final verse, he says the key of David also closes the path to misery here on earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I've experienced misery. I'm sure uh, all of us in this room at one time or another experienced quite a bit of misery. Here, what he's doing is he's referencing Isaiah 25, verse 8, where the prophet says of the Lord, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Again, uh, we're probably more familiar with the New Testament language that's referencing that Old, Old Testament passage, Revelation 21, 4 and 5. It says, when the gates of heaven are opened, death will be no more, neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the paths of misery have been closed entirely to the people of God. They now only have uh, the, the path of, of peace and the path of, of delight in the Lord. Now, what's, what's really interesting, though, is that uh, as the writer uh, of the hymn is using these titles, he's taking them, um, at least the last three, he's taking directly from this passage in Revelation 22, verse 16, where Jesus says, he puts all these titles together. Jesus says, I am the root or the branch. I am the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. Right? And so then each time after he says all these things, again, the exhortation to God's people is, come, come, O branch, come, O bright morning star, come, Emmanuel, uh, because this is the unveiling of Christ uh, throughout the New Testament. But the, 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 the great hope of every believer and the prayer for all those who are eagerly awaiting his return is, is based upon this, this very revelation that Christ is the one that we've been looking for. Christ is the one that has been pointed to all of these years, and now he has come, and now he's coming back. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, I wanted to leave you with one thing in reference to the hymn itself. Um, it's interesting. It's written in Latin. Originally, there's seven of them. And each one of the O comes uh, begins with 
you know, whatever title it is. And if you take the taken as an acrostic, the first letter of each title, uh, spelled in the Latin, uh, actually spells the, the, the two words, cross, which basically means, I'm coming tomorrow. So even the writer of the, the hymn itself has compiled it in such a way so that as we're praying, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come quickly Lord Jesus, the response is, I'm coming tomorrow, or I'm coming soon, as it says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. I'm coming tomorrow, if you will. So again, our response then is, Amen, come Lord Jesus, right? Our regular prayer should be, let your kingdom come, O Lord, just as it is here and on earth as it is in heaven. For the story is told of uh, of some Scottish sailors uh, who were coming back from a long journey, had been on their fishing vessel for many, many months, and uh, as they neared the shore, uh, the skipper was looking through the binoculars and was was picking out all the people that were on the docks waiting for their return. And uh, literally, he was calling them out by name because they all knew each other and they all knew their wives. And he says, I see Bill's Mary, and I see Tom's Margaret, and I see David's Anne, and so on and so forth. But there's one particular man on the ship whose wife was never called, and so his heart began to sink, thinking, what, what happened to my wife? And even as he got off the boat, got on the dock, he's walking back up toward the hill toward his house, and, and uh, he's thinking, uh, maybe she's dead. Um, but lo and behold, he comes in the door, and as soon as he comes in the door, his wife gives him a big hug and says, I've been waiting for you. And, uh, and he's, he, he's delighted that uh, she actually is still alive and, and wants to see him. But then he gives her this slight rebuke saying, yes, but the other men's wives were watching for them. I was thinking about that. There's a difference between just waiting for Christ and watching for Christ, like those children were in the windows of, um, of the children's home. The, the purpose of this Christmas, ad, this Christmas Advent hymn is to encourage us, to exhort us to be looking, to be watching, to be waiting, to be praying, to be longing for the return of Christ. Again, this hymn is not for unbelievers. It's a hymn that's for believers, that they might know and and, uh, be assured of the coming of Christ and yet also be encouraged to look for Him, to call for Him, to cry for Him, and also to wait for Him. With that being said... uh, May we encourage one another with these words daily as we long for his coming. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we do ask that you would use the words of God as they're written for us in the, the book of Isaiah, in the book of Revelation, and throughout all of your scripture. We pray that you would use the words of a generation uh, that is now past, that has, has encapsulated these words for us in such a way that we would remember them through song. We pray, Father, that you would give us a, a heart to sing them. You would give us a heart to, to believe them and a heart to, to believe the promises of God. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts to long for the coming of Christ. In Jesus' name.